season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. So you won't take down lies or you will take down lies? I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Congresswoman, uh, in... I'm not talking about spin. I'm talking about actual in, Yes, in most cases, in a democracy, okay. I believe that people should be able to see for themselves what politicians that they may or may not vote for so are you saying won't to take judge them their down. character for themselves. So you won't take... You may flag that it's wrong, but you won't take it down. Uh, Congresswoman, it's, uh, it, it depends on the context that it shows up, organic post... If Facebook were a country, it would be the largest on earth. As the New Yorker pointed out two years ago, Facebook has as many adherents now as Christianity. Over a third of all human beings currently alive on the planet log into the social network at least once a month. We do this even though many of us are totally aware of the dangers of having this much power vested in one website. A website which has shown itself to be stubbornly resistant to oversight from any kind of legislative body. In the clip we just played, you heard US Congresswoman Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez getting Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg to admit that the site won't necessarily remove political content containing lies, even if it means that millions or even billions of people are gaining a sense of what is going on in the world that is totally false. As many people have found out, sites like these have also proved really ineffective at helping you if you're being viciously attacked by other users, even if they're threatening to rape or torture or kill you. And this goes not just for Facebook, but for the other social media giants too, and particularly Twitter. It's like a fairy tale with a really dark moral at the end. Once upon a time, there was a people who found a way to talk to everyone on Earth at the same time. They thought it would be an amazing way to bring the world together. But what they discovered was that all that talking tore people apart, set neighbours against each other, and left everybody a little more unhappy and a lot less safe. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, a daily Maverick podcast where we bring you the stories behind the stories. In our third season, we're looking at solutions to South Africa's problems. Although this week, the issue we're taking on is very much a global problem. It's social media. Now, there's a lot wrong with social media. There's quite a lot of research suggesting it can be linked to depression and poor mental health. There's the misuse of users' private information. It's indisputable that Facebook is leeching revenue from media organizations like ours. There's a lot of alarmism about how social media is destroying our attention spans and appetite for substantial information. And there's an entire culture war currently raging about cancel culture and whether or not you believe that free speech is being censored online. But in this episode, we'll be focusing on how to fix just two elements. The role social media plays in spreading false information and how unfriendly and uncivil a place it can be. We'll also be talking to a South African research unit which is using the tricks of trolls and bots to combat xenophobia, misogyny and racism online. I'm your host, Rebecca Davis.
I have not seen you backing off fights on Twitter. In the time since you were elected, you've targeted the cast of Hamilton, the New York Times, China, Boeing, the media, and SNL. Is this proving to be a habit that you're finding a difficult time breaking? No, I think I am very restrained, and I talk about important things. I talk about you know, as you know, recently China and the fact uh, we talked about their devaluation, we talked about their building this massive military fortress in the middle of the South China Sea, which they're not supposed to be doing, and other things. And frankly, it's a modern day form of communication. I get it out much faster than a press release. I get it out much more honestly than dealing with dishonest reporters. That, of course, was former U.S. President Donald Trump being interviewed by CNN's Matt Lauer on his Twitter habit. And Trump saying his Twitter use was restrained was one of his innumerable lies. To borrow a quote from Richard Seymour's 2020 book, The Twittering Machine, many of us have become scripturient, possessed by a violent desire to write incessantly. Donald Trump's Twitter use would certainly fit that description. Trump had over 88 million followers at his peak, meaning that he had an almost unmatched ability to shape the conversation on Twitter. And Trump used that power of unmediated access to the public to spread lies, to foster dissent, and arguably to foment violence. For years, people complained that Trump's conduct on the site would have brought sanctions for regular users. But Trump was allowed to tweet with relative freedom until 2020, when shit got serious in two respects. The first was the COVID-19 pandemic, and the second was the US elections. And in relation to both, Trump continued to pump falsehoods out into the domain. Cornell University concluded that Donald Trump was the single largest driver of misinformation in the public conversation about the coronavirus in the first months of the outbreak. Just a one-man fake news machine. And despite the high stakes, Twitter didn't take action against him for that. The straw that broke the camel's back, you'll probably remember, was the fact that Trump used social media after the US election results to encourage his followers to descend on Washington in early January to protest against Joe Biden's victory. What followed, of course, was the storming of the US Capitol on 6th January 2021. Even Silicon Valley's notoriously unresponsive giants could not turn a blind eye to the desecration of American democracy in this fashion. And they finally acted against Donald Trump. In the case of Twitter, the site announced it was banning Trump because he had breached the company's glorification of violence policy. As a side note, the fact that it was the Capitol riots that prompted the banning was sort of an amazing moment because it was tantamount to an admission for basically the first time that actually maybe social media sites were responsible for helping foment and perhaps more importantly organize offline violence. But that's not the aspect we're interested in here. Why I'm mentioning this is the effect of the banning. Twitter bans Trump and the company's share price instantly dropped. In fact, at one point, that one decision looked likely to wipe around $2.5 billion off Twitter's market value. But here's what else the ban did. It meant that the volume of online misinformation about U.S. election fraud equally rapidly plummeted. 
San Francisco's Signal Labs, in fact, calculated that the banning of Trump, together with a whole bunch of QAnon accounts, caused misinformation about U.S. election fraud to drop by around 73% in one week. It really was that simple. Take out the main dude who is squawking about election fraud and the whole conversation dies down. That's not to say that there aren't some difficult conversations to be had about the circumstances under which someone should be deplatformed. There are serious issues at stake here about free speech and harm. But if your primary concern is stopping the spread of potentially dangerous fake news, it turns out the most effective mechanism of all may simply be to silence the loudest voices. To give another example, a more recent report by the Center for Countering Digital Hate found that just 12 individuals globally are responsible for almost two-thirds of anti-vaccine content circulating on social media platforms. These people still have accounts despite repeatedly violating social media terms of service. But it's not hard to predict that if action were to be taken against them, the effects would be immediate and dramatic. Back home in South Africa, an investigation by the DFR Lab, published by Daily Maverick in September 2020, found that just one man called Sufiso Gwala, a former SANDF soldier, was responsible for orchestrating a significant volume of xenophobic posts on Twitter, often containing false information about foreigners in South Africa. Here's the moral of the story. On social networks, just a few voices telling lies in an effective way can skew public discourse in an insanely disproportionate manner. So why not take out those voices? When we're back, a chilling interview with a self-proclaimed internet troll helps explain why it's so difficult to create a civil atmosphere online. Change is everywhere. Sometimes it's good, sometimes confusing or so extraordinary that it challenges everyone and everything. But whatever change comes next, 91 will strive to do everything possible to make a positive change for your investments and for the world we live in. 91, investing for a world of change. This season of Don't Shoot the Messenger is brought to you by 91. 91 is an authorized financial service provider. Death threats, rape threats, even people just being unnecessarily mean online. We've come to accept this constant hostility as the price we pay for being on social networks. It wasn't supposed to be like this. The first creators of the internet, like Tim Berners-Lee, envisaged the online space as a kind of utopia, where people would be able to chat freely and engage with each other, divorced from the baggage of real-world prejudices and power imbalances. That's a far cry from what has come to pass. We know how this works now, how the red flags of your social media notifications fire up your fight or flight impulses, how the dopamine feedback loops we get from receiving likes and comments provide a perverse incentive to post very intense, overwrought opinions. Anger frequently goes viral. Nuance never does. But if the online space brings out the worst in most of us, There are some people for whom it unearths something even darker. Take a listen to this interview from 2017 between Fairfax Media's Ginger Gorman 
and a self-proclaimed Australian troll using the pseudonym Mark. Mark is part of an international trolling network, almost all of whom are young white males. And he estimates that despite having a full-time job, he devotes around 30 hours a week to trolling. As you'll hear, his voice has been scrambled in this interview. There is research that suggests that internet trolls are sadists, narcissists and psychopaths and they also have Machiavellian tendencies. How would you respond to that? Yeah, it's pretty true. Well, in my case, it's true. I don't know about everyone. Which parts of it are true? The, um, the psychopathy part, as I've gotten older, has gotten a lot worse. Um, and pretty nar- narcissistic as well. A lot of the time people think people troll because they feel bad about themselves, so they try, try and take it out on other people, but it's not really... It might be the case in some people, but not in the people I've come across. And what about the psychopathy that you're talking about? Um, I don't really have emotions that much. Like, I have emotions with nothing to do with regretting stuff. And, like, that field of emotions, sadness. You don't feel anything when, say, for example, you might be targeting someone who's mentally ill? Nothing bad. What do you feel? I don't know, it's like entertaining. What about the morals of all of this? You must know that it is morally wrong to threaten to rape and kill strangers and make people feel afraid. Morally, yeah, but morals don't come into it. When he was 14 years old, Mark started posting offensive comments on memorial pages set up to honour people who had recently died. I want you to think back to when you were trolling memorial Facebook pages. Can you give me an example of somebody's page that you did that to? Um... I was trolling a girl who got hit by a train. And then, um, this isn't where you... No, it's just so vile that you would do that. You know, it's funny. <laughs> but can you not imagine the pain that her family must have felt when you were making fun of somebody that they loved and that they had lost in such an awful way? Not really. I mean... I don't think about that. What do you think about? What do you mean? Like, what do you think about when you're writing those things about someone that's just died in that way? The possible reaction I'm going to get. And so that's really what you're seeking, the reaction. Yeah. That's the pleasure for you. If you want to call it pleasure, I don't see it as that. What do you see it as? Entertainment. You can find a link to the full interview in our show notes in which Mark goes on to suggest that the only way that women in particular can stay safe from online trolls like him is to simply not react in any way to the threats and insults, which really I can say from personal experience can be easier said than done. It's well known by now that women and people of colour are disproportionately targeted for abuse on sites like Twitter, particularly if they are journalists or purporting to hold any authority or expertise on basically any topic. 
This month, writers advocacy group PEN America released a report titled No Excuse for Abuse, what social media companies can do now to combat online harassment and empower users. They have a number of really interesting suggestions as to how Twitter and Facebook and the gang can address the problem of abusive behavior. For instance, that in the cases of extreme abuse, these sites should create an SOS button that users could activate to trigger a safety mode and gain access to an emergency hotline. Another interesting suggestion is that users should be able to assemble rapid response teams so that you can have trusted allies who can jump in and help you when you're under attack online. Of course, it's pretty insane that we should have to be talking about these kinds of safety measures at all, but welcome to social media in 2021. I was interested in the idea of being able to assemble your own gang to help you online because it mirrors some of the strategies currently being trialed by a local body. My name is Steph Snell. I'm from the Center of Analytics and Behavioral Change, Director Dialogue Facilitation. What the center does, which has just been recently established, is it looks into misinformation, disinformation, and just in general, that the kind of divisiveness that's going on in social media. Remember Bell Pottinger, the notorious British PR firm hired by the Guptas to go on Twitter and to foster support for the Gupta family, distrust of mainstream media, and anger about white monopoly capital? Well, Steph and his colleagues started thinking, what if we could take those tactics and use them for very different purposes? I've been particularly involved in trying to see how these tools that Bell Pottinger and the advertising industry and other people use to manipulate sentiment and election outcomes, etc. How can we use these tools to support social justice, to support civil society and to support health? Steph says these kinds of interventions are urgently needed because South African social media is pretty crazy at the moment. In South Africa at the moment, social media is a bit of a war zone. Um, and right now it's around the whole radical economic transformation narrative. And it's opposite the white monopoly capital narrative. But general social media in South Africa is already being used divisively by many groups. There's groups operating in all sorts of different spaces with different agendas. It's a very hostile place and it is full of disinformation, misinformation. People are fighting for their political lives and others for money and others to stay out of jail. And uh, social media has become a new battleground for that stuff. What the Center for Analytics and Behavioral Change is interested in is exactly what it says on the tin. It analyzes the data and then sees if it can use that to promote behavioural change, in this case, in the direction of greater social cohesion and general civility. Steph explains that they'll choose an issue like xenophobia and take a deep dive into what that conversation looks like online, who's saying what, and who the loudest voices are. Eventually, we come out with all the people who, for argument's sake, who are uh, promoting xenophobia on the one side and all the people who are defending against xenophobia on the other side. And we, we call them antagonists and protagonists. So what we're doing is we're siding with the protagonists. They are on side for us in a social justice perspective. So we're, we're involved in amplifying their contributions and motivating and recruiting them 
and this is consistently over months and possibly years. The troll we heard earlier, that Australian guy, Mark, he was part of a coordinated trolling network who would message each other about who to target and then all pile in on their victims. What Steph's centre is doing is sort of similar but opposite. They're using those coordination techniques to give support to people online who are trying to counter xenophobia, misogyny, racism and so on through their posts. Here's Steph explaining their online interventions around gender-based violence. How it worked is this. Last year, the rapes and murders of Uyaneni, Tsecho, Fatso, Pule and others, um, there were a lot of men who responded. They were very upset about that. And we were able to see who these men are. And we found them and then we spoke to them. And the first thing we did was to pitch up in their timelines and just to say to them, we see you and we stand by you. In other, in other words, we, we were trying to create curiosity as opposed to hard cells. And there was obviously a website they could go to. And then that website has a whole lot of information and different bits of training and insight into how to do something about misogyny as opposed to just saying you're unhappy with it. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to get all those men who are already on side, we're trying to motivate them further to take further action in their communities, in, in their immediate communities, in their families. And we're encouraging them to do that in many, many different ways. We're providing them with all sorts of information and resources to do that. And then potentially also providing them with peer support because we know who they all are and we can hook them up together. And then this happens over a persistent period of time. Um, and as we go along, we keep scraping social media and we keep having more and more men that join. The Bell Pottinger comparison is actually quite apt. It seemed to me that what Steph and his colleagues are doing is also manipulating the online conversation, but using their powers for good. Well, I don't know whether it, <laughs> I don't want to get into good and bad, um, but yes, we are manipulating the discussion. We're taking a stand against prejudices and we're trying to manipulate the discussion in our favour as opposed to other people manipulating against us. We're not breaking any laws in the process. And these tools are being used all the time by the advertising industry. And they're trying to manipulate people into making sales all the time. So why can't we do the same? Over the past two years or so, there have been some promising signs that social media sites are finally wising up to the fact that they have to take some responsibility for social harm. And that's good news, if long overdue. But in the interim, it seems like what we are realising is that the only measures which might be effective in making social media a less harmful place might have to be quite extreme. They might have to involve banning the Trumps of the world. They might have to involve SOS buttons and emergency hotlines. And they just might have to involve taking the tricks of the trolls and using those tricks against them. Don't Shoot the Messenger is a podcast brought to you by The Daily Maverick. This episode was produced by Haji Mohammed Dauji and written by Rebecca Davis. Editing by Tevya Turok Shapiro. Sound mix by Bernard Kotze. And additional support from Catherine Kotze. You can listen to Don't Shoot the Messenger on The Daily Maverick's website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more, subscribe to The Daily Maverick's newsletters and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you.
have any questions or comments about the latest episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger, why not post them on the comments section of Apple Podcasts and we'll try and look into them for future episodes. You can also rate and review us. Our podcast is only possible because of your engagement and we want to know what you think. Bye.